Good evening, friends. Detroit, how's it going? Uh, three weeks ago, when we sat in this room together, if you were here, we talked a little bit about grief. And one of the things I'd just like to draw your mind back to if you were here at that time, because we talked a little bit about how it's interesting that we come in this space tonight, and it is a mix. You guys, there's so many different experiences that sit in that room, and it's this way, this room, and it's that way all the time. Uh, there's a mix of joy, there's a mix of pain, there's a mix of celebration and sorrow. There are some of you who are here, and you are... You are just like on full send right now for Jesus and others that are skeptics that are kind of waiting and seeing and you're trying to figure this whole thing out. It's, it's a journey. Faith is a journey. And we're all in different spaces on that. And it's humbling to come in, like to sit in this seat because my prayer every week as I get ready to talk for you guys, like Holy Spirit, would you preach a couple hundred different sermons in the room? Because that's, that's my expectation. I got words that I've prepped tonight. But I think the Holy Spirit can do a unique work in you, can meet you in the space. Like, it's so interesting afterwards, someone will come up to me and they'll be like, hey, when you said this, that really spoke to me. And I'm like, I'm not sure I said that exactly. I mean, like, I said words kind of like that, but I think the Holy Spirit interpreted them into you in a unique way. And he has the power to do that tonight. I pray that the words, like, it's because they're not my words, they're his words. I pray that as his words come to life tonight, they would meet you in the space that you're at. But not only are we all different, there also is some commonality in the room. And the text that I've been studying the past couple weeks for tonight is all about this, this idea of journey. And it's really about this, this space of decision. When you come to a space where you have to make a decision. And you guys are super familiar with this idea because from ages 18 to 23, your life gets turned into decision mode. Some of you right now are like, I, I'd like for you to stop talking about that because I wanted to take right now and not think about where I was living next year or where I'm going to be working next year or all these, these looming decisions that you have to start thinking about. This idea of what am I going to do for the rest of my life and what spouse am I going to have and what do I believe and where in the country am I going to settle down and suddenly these things that you didn't have to, like at age 17, you were like, sweet, I have a driver's license. Now, okay, now you're looking at adulting in a whole different light. Decisions that sits there. And I know that some of you, well, a very, very small number of you probably love poetry or would say that out loud. I do love poetry. And I'm one of those people who thinks actually everybody loves poetry. I really believe that in the core of my heart. I just don't think you've probably found the right poems yet if you haven't resonated yet. But one of my favorite uh, authors, uh, classic American poet Robert Frost, one of his most famous poems, The Road Not Taken. This is just the first stanza of it. He says, and you've probably heard this one, two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. So you see what Frost is doing here, right? He's trying to capture the moment of decision, that moment where two paths diverge and you're standing there and you have to make a choice. You made a choice to be in this room. I don't just mean to come here tonight, but I mean to go to ISU or Heartland or Wesleyan or wherever you're at right now. You made the choice to do that. You can't, when you're in the moment of decision, you can't choose to not make a choice. Why? Because that's still a choice. <laughs> like you, you are still, you're forced in that moment to decide 
what it is that you are moving down and where you're going to continue. And you guys, the most important question that we have, I, I certainly believe in this lifetime, where we, we start to hit this crossroads of, is there a God? This is a big question. Is there a God? Do I believe that it's possible that there is a God, a creator who created all of this? That's question one. If the answer there is yes, then the follow-up question to that is certainly, can I know him? It whatever that being is. If the answer is no, we should pack up and go home because the rest of tonight's useless, okay? But if, if the answer to that is yes, that I think it's possible for us to know who God is, we need to truck down that trail as fast as we can because the most important questions about life are going to be found on that trail. You hear me? Does my life have purpose? Does my pain have meaning? What happens to me after I'm dead? What do I invest in while I'm here? How do I live this life? All of those answers are going to be found on that trail. What does it mean to know God? Because if he created us, he created us for a purpose. Again, if the answer is no, if there is no God, or if we cannot possibly know that God, then the rest of this is all meaningless. But if we can, and I would certainly argue we can, then there's a lot of meaning down that path. And this is why we've been studying the I am statements of Jesus. Because God does not want, this, this, this picture that Robert Frost has of us, you looking down as far as you can down that path to be like, I know I need to make a decision, so I need as much data as I can get. How, like, what do I see down that path, and what do I see down that path? Jesus is not trying to hide the path. He's trying to expose it. He's doing the exact opposite. He's trying to expose the path to you and say, hey, this is what God looks like. This is the path to the Father. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. This is what Jesus is saying over and over and over again in his teaching. He's exposing us to it, not trying to hide it. He's exposing it. And so that's the reason why we've been studying these I am statements all the way along is because we want to understand if God did create us, then what's this God like? Who is he? How do I understand him? And tonight, we're going to mainly look in John 14, where there are three I am statements from Jesus, but I'm also going to jump back to John 10, where there are two more. So we're like cramming five I am statements from Jesus. This is, this is consolidated study tonight. You ready for this? I'm going to take your silence as a yes. Okay, here we go. John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. This is a direct quote from Jesus. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you, I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. You hear that? You know the way to where I'm going, Jesus said. Now you may, you may be sitting here thinking, no, I don't. I don't know that way. Well, you can join Thomas, because Thomas in this moment said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So all these questions that we have for Jesus about what is the path to knowing God? What is the path to understanding who God is? What's the path to understanding his nature and his character and what he wants for us? Jesus says, hey, <laughs> I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father but through me. You want to know who God is? You want to know what he's like? Jesus says, I'm the visual aid. Look at me. Understand me. I am the path, he's saying. That's what the way means. In John 10, 6 and John 10, 9, Jesus expands on this. We covered those scriptures when we went through, I am the shepherd, the good shepherd. But Jesus says there, it's the same connotation. I am the door, he says. I am the gate. It's all the same. I am the entry point and the path. You want to get to know God, you come through me, Jesus says. Now, the first thing I want to tell you tonight about the way, if we're talking about the way and the path, is that this isn't a new path. Jesus isn't, isn't walking into the scene and saying, hey, surprise, it's me, new path. This is the path that was to be all along. Uh, sometimes when people talk about Scripture, and I know that a lot of people struggle when they read the Old Testament, um, and I get that. It's, it feels foreign and it feels a little bit confusing, but scholars will talk about how the Old Testament is the New Testament, excuse me, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed, which I think is why we enjoy reading the stories of Jesus more, because it feels more like it's geared to us. And guess what? It is, because this is the age that we live in, in the Old Testament. It's a story of God revealing himself to a group of people that are not like you or me. Revealing himself. But the way was always there. You guys, the way was always there. In Genesis 3, when we fell away from God, the plan was always there to bring us back. The path was always there. It didn't surprise him. When he created that tree in the garden, that picture we have in the very beginning of our story, it wasn't a surprise to him that Adam and Eve walked away. He knew that was going to be coming. It didn't, nothing can take God by surprise. And therefore, when he creates the tree, he also creates the path that brings us back to him. And what a beautiful thing to get to preach this at Christmas. You know why? Because the path has always been there. It's always been there. Look at this uh, I'm just going to throw all of the, um, I had a bunch of different scriptures, and I just decided I, I would throw them all up on one screen for you here. But look at some of these prophecies that we have. Isaiah 53, 1 through 6, they said that Christ would be despised and rejected, crushed and broken for our sins, that his punishment would bring us peace. Hundred and hundreds of years before Jesus was on the scene. Isaiah 7.14 said that he would be born of a virgin. Isaiah 9.6 that he would come as a child and the government would be on his shoulders. Micah 5.2 goes as far as to say where. This child's going to be found in Bethlehem, the prophet says. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born. What family line will he come from, which was really important to the Jewish people? He'd come from the line of Abraham, Genesis 12:3, of Isaac, Genesis 17:19, of Jacob, Genesis 28:14, through Judah, Genesis 49:10, and David, 2 Samuel 7:12 through 13. Why does that matter? Well, it matters, first of all, because it's all fulfilled. But second of all, that's why in Matthew 1, there's a huge genealogy listed. Matthew doesn't want you to miss that the path has been fulfilled. He gives the entire genealogy, starting from Abraham, all the way down to Jesus himself. To show that that, even that was fulfilled through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and David. All of those things hit one after the other. Matthew says, don't miss this. The path was there from Genesis, you guys. God said it aloud, there's going to be an offspring who will be the path back to me. 
It's not a new path. Not even close. God knew from the moment he created us that we would walk away, that we would be broken, and that we would need redemption. So then the question that follows this text usually is, isn't this a weird exclusive claim? Jesus claiming to be the way. Because you notice it's not, he doesn't say, I am a path. I am one of many paths to the Father. Follow me towards some form of enlightenment or follow something else. Whatever, doesn't matter. These are not, those are not Jesus' words. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And in our culture, we don't like the exclusivity there. Why would Jesus say that? Well, to answer that question, I have to kind of walk around it from behind, okay? So you're going to have to give me some grace on how long it takes me to get there. I want, uh, I want you guys to be students of your culture. I want you to think about what you watch. I want you to think about what you see. I want you to think about what you read and the messages that are coming into your life through song lyrics, through, uh, like, even when you read news stories, it's not hard anymore to catch the, the philosophy, the, the philosophical vibe that sits behind what is being given to you, okay? And I'm going to tell you tonight, I, I am very much uh, a student of the culture in the sense that I, I can't not analyze it. I watch a movie and I'm listening for the messages that they're filling in. I'm looking at what the main characters are learning because that's what they want me to be learning. And I'm like, oh, that's what they're, I mean, again, not that it all has an agenda, but the writer has their own worldview, and it slips out from time to time. And it's super interesting to see. One of the things that you'll hear all over the place, I noticed it uh, just a couple weeks ago, I, I rewatched the movie Interstellar. You know that movie? I haven't seen it in years. It's a great movie. Great movie. And, um, and I was watching it, but here's the message. Okay? And if you haven't seen it, sorry. I'm, gonna, well, I'm not really ruining it for you, but, well, sort of. Anyway, the, throughout this movie, all of these weird, almost supernatural things are happening. And they, they don't understand why these things are happening. And the characters are struggling with this idea of, is this God leading us toward whatever is supposed to be next? Because the, the earth is kind of coming to an end and that we're having to figure out as a planet how we're going to survive. Um, so is it God who's helping us get to this next space? Is it aliens? Like that they're asking these questions, the characters in the movie are asking these questions. And you get to the end of the movie and you know who it is who's been helping us all along? Us. Humans. We have been our own greatest hope all along in the movie. And it, it, the, as the movie reaches its climax and all of this, I'm like, man, this is a good movie. And man, that's a terrible message. <laughs> like, that we were our greatest hope all along. And there is, in a lot of stuff that all of us are bombarded with, there is this worldview that says we've outgrown God. That's an antiquated myth. You have teachers who, who profess this in your classroom, that we've outgrown this. Those myth, those myth structures that we needed 100 years ago, we no longer need, and we've graduated from those. Oh, you guys, it's all over the place. But the question remains, what happens if God really does exist? What if we stack that truth up next to, next to that? What if we haven't really graduated from that idea? What if there really are brilliant people on the planet today, and there are, who look at the world that we live in and believe that it's absolutely rational to believe that we didn't put all this here ourselves? 
that we don't have the ability to rescue ourselves and that actually there's something broken in us that needs rescued. Here's the second thing I want you to notice that's common in our culture if you start looking at, at worldviews. That makes its way into the way people see Christianity from the outside looking in. Here's what I mean by that. There is this perception that this idea that humans are pretty darn great and that we have the capacity to rescue ourselves, that when people look at all religions, Christianity included, they look at all religions, they say, oh, Christianity is about making yourself a little bit better. Self-help. I make myself a little more moral. I change my behavior. It's about behavior modification. And if that's true, aren't all religions just kind of basically a minor behavior modification? Make yourself 20% better than you were before? Earn heaven? And if that were true, I think they'd have a pretty good argument. And you guys, the more that I sit and absorb as a student of the culture, I'm fascinated when I hear people talk about Christianity and talk about Jesus people who don't know him. I'm fascinated by it. I love it. Any of you, have any of you seen the show, The Good Place? Any of you watch that show? Fascinated by that show. Because you're listening to someone try to understand and, and be funny about it, and it's clever, but try to understand and think about Christianity from the outside in. And absolutely what they project onto it is this idea that all of it is based on behavior. Let me show you. I have a little clip for you. You ready? Here we go. Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to your first day in the afterlife. You were all, simply put, good people. But how do we know that you were good? How are we sure? During your time on Earth, every one of your actions had a positive or a negative value, depending on how much good or bad that action put into the universe. Every sandwich you ate, every time you bought a magazine, every single thing you did had an effect that rippled out over time and ultimately created some amount of good or bad. You know how some people pull into the breakdown lane when there's traffic and they think to themselves, ah, who cares, no one's watching. We were watching. Surprise! <laughs> anyway, when your time on Earth has ended, we calculate the total value of your life using our perfectly accurate measuring system. Only the people with the very highest scores, the true cream of the crop, get to come here, to the good place. What happens to everyone else, you ask? Don't worry about it. The point is, you are here because you lived one of the very best lives that could be lived. All right, let's talk about that. Specifically, let me get back to this screen, okay? Because whoever wrote some of these was just brilliant, right? 15.02 points for remembering your sister's birthday. Minus 40.57 points for overstating a personal connection to a tragedy that has nothing to do with you. Plus 53 points for remaining loyal to the Cleveland Browns. Minus 22.22 points for failing to disclose a camel illness when selling the camel. My favorite on the screen, though, is 6.6 .6 points for fixing a broken tricycle for a child who loves tricycles and 0.04 points for fixing a broken tricycle for a child who is indifferent to tricycles. 
okay? Listen, the list is ridiculous. And they mean for it to be ridiculous. Like, I get what they're pointing fun at here. I'm not missing the joke. Don't get me wrong, okay? What I want to tell you is this is legitimately a caricature of the way that most people view the way Christianity from the outside. And sadly, a lot of us in the room have reworked this software into Christianity as well, where this becomes a part of the way we think that Christianity works. Plus five points for spending time with Jesus this morning. Minus two points for the website you visited this afternoon. And it just continues. This treadmill that you're on, that is just behavior modification reworked again and again and again. You guys, when Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, he was rescuing us from this garbage. You hear me? He was rescuing us from this garbage. Because truly, if Christianity is behavior modification, live your life a little bit better, and maybe you'll gain access to heaven, we really aren't that much different from every other world religion that you see out there. But if Christianity's, if, if at the core of Christianity what we have is an absolute rejection of this, where Jesus says, no, all of the good and the bad goes on my shoulders and I'll die for it in your place, and you get heaven because your balance is zero. You mess up tomorrow, your balance is still zero. You mess up the next day, your balance still, is still zero. You wear the righteousness of Jesus. That's why it mattered that he came to this earth, and it mattered that he lived a perfect life on your behalf, and it mattered that he took your sin. I think this is hilarious. But when you step back from a distance, it's, it's brutally sad that we keep running this software over and over again. And you guys, this truth from the outside is pervasive. When I hear people who are not followers of Jesus talk about Jesus, this is what I hear. This is what I hear over and over again. Not the rescue from this garbage, but the religion that's attached. This is not what Jesus meant when he said that he was the way, my friends. He came to rescue us from it. If you don't believe me, take Paul's words for it. Paul said this, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so none of us can boast about it. Clear. For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from before the beginning of time to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. You hear the language there? Paul's saying there was a path from the very beginning back to God. It was always supposed to be Christ who was the way, the truth, the life, the gate, the door. That's who he is. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through our deeds. Yeah? No. Through Christ. Through Christ. Show me your bicep for a second. Okay? Hold it up. Be proud. Okay? I just need you, I need to lock this in your brain tonight, okay? This is not about what you can do. This is about what he did. 
At the core of Christianity, you hear me tonight? This is not about what you can do, how much strength you've got in your arms, how much morality you can muster up, how pure of a life you can live, how little pornography you can watch. That is not what the Christian life is about. It is about what Christ did. You, you mix those two things up, and Christianity becomes a weird, twisted, nasty thing. He transforms us on the inside. It's not about the strength you can muster up. It's about what he did. And when somebody comes to you and is like, man, your life is transformed, you have no choice but to be humble. You're like, I, I just gave my life up. He's the one who's doing this. This natural humility built into our lives because all we can do is point at Christ and his rescue. Somebody is rescued off the side of the cliff, the last thing they can do is brag. You know, they're, they're, they're hanging onto the side of a cliff. They're about to fall off. Somebody throws them a rope. They get pulled up the side of the cliff, huffing and puffing. They land there. Nobody at that point, you put a camera in their face, and they're like, how do you feel right now? Pretty good. So, well, I hung onto that rope. You're not bragging. You have nothing to brag about in that moment. You were rescued. It's not about what I can do. Power of my own self my own morality, my own behavior modification. It is all about what Christ did. That's all I can point to at the end of the day. Jesus' good news, the gospel, the path that's been laid out in front of us. You guys, this is, when Jesus said he's, he's the way, this is a new thing. This is a new way. This was completely different. To the Jews who were listening to him at the time, this was not what they had heard before. They didn't understand. They didn't expect the Messiah to look quite like this. They thought he'd be coming, coming riding in on a white horse. They didn't expect him to go to a cross. That wasn't the expectation. And it, it was so different. I was surprised by this when I did this study, actually. It was so different that followers of Jesus in the New Testament, do you know what they were called mostly? I mean, in, uh, I think it's Acts 11, we're told that in Antioch they were first called Christians. No one had ever called them Christians before that. There wasn't really a name. Jesus wasn't great at branding himself, okay? He didn't have a brand as he walked around. At Antioch, people started calling themselves Christians. But do you know what Christians were most known by? They were called followers of the way. References in Acts 9, 1 through 2, Acts 19.9, Acts 19.23, Acts 22.4, Acts 24.14, Acts 24.22. All of those references talk about followers of Jesus, and it describes them as, quote, followers of the way. This way was so new and so different that you would preach a gospel of grace that that's the way that people like me and you, followers of Jesus, were known. Oh, that guy? He's a follower of the way. You know that new way <laughs> to God? That's what that person follows. I'm coming to you tonight, and I'm begging you, okay? I am pleading with you not to cash in on the other ways. And I'm not just talking, I'm not talking about like, oh, I don't, please don't be a Zen Buddhist. That's not what I mean. I mean, do not trade in behavior modification. I can be a little bit better. I can reach my own enlightenment. I can do this thing myself. Do not trade that in for the good news gospel of Jesus Christ that says you surrender your life and he creates transformation in you. Now, don't get me wrong. So you say, Ben, behavior isn't important? No, once we're transformed on the inside, it starts coming outside. Jesus had a lot to say about behavior. We just have to get the train cars in the right order. 
because this isn't a work you can do on your own. You could change your behavior. You can change a lot of it for a little bit of time. You can change a little bit of it for a long time, but you can't bring the kind of inner change that the Holy Spirit can bring within you that you need. And that is done through the way, the truth, the life, the gate, and the door of Jesus Christ. And that is it, you guys. That's why he can be exclusive. Because he's like, there's no other path. All of the others are behavior modification. This one is grace and mercy that falls on you like rain. That same passage where Jesus is talking about being the way, the truth, and the life This is the next verse. Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is like, I made myself available. I am here. I'm standing in front of you. I'm preaching the word. I'm showing you the path. You don't have to wonder. You don't, like the the Robert Frost poem, you don't have to stand and peer down into the undergrowth to try to figure out which space to take. I am trying to reveal it to all of you. I am standing bare in front of you, revealing the Father. Jesus says, it's a new way. Don't return to old ways. You guys, don't return to old ways. It's not about what you can do. It's about what Christ did. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for those who are caught on that endless treadmill of feeling like their behavior just doesn't measure up to you, that they would fall back into your grace tonight. I pray that it would be refreshing. pray that they would feel freedom I pray that they would feel forgiveness. And Jesus, I am just eternally grateful. I'm humbled by your love and your grace and your mercy. I don't understand it, but I accept it. And I pray as we worship tonight, God, you'd help us just to live in the reality of grace and embrace your new way. Help us be followers, Jesus, of the way. In your name and sacrifice we pray. Amen.